Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Eric. Uh, I am a pastor in training here. If I have not had the chance to meet you, I would love to do that. Um, and I, I feel like, real quick, I just need to explain myself. So, I did, in fact, go to the University of South Carolina. Um, not, not the right context. Uh, so, I, 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 if you know me, uh, you will know that I could not care any less about football. Just at all. So I learned that there was a game yesterday when I showed up to Kent's house right before halftime because uh, I went over there to hang out for a little bit and I was like, oh wow, a football game. Um, I was already planning on wearing this. I just got this shirt and it's a nice L.L. Bean flannel and it was cold outside and I was like, I'm going to wear that shirt. So I showed up this morning without thinking about it and Marcus was like, all right, Gamecock colors. And then I realized what I had done. So... <laughs> I apologize to you if that is distracting or offensive, um, but also go Gamecocks, right? Uh, I paid them a lot of money, so I feel like this is the least they can do for me. <clears throat> Anyways, uh, we are officially in the final week of our series all about gender and the Bible. This is the last week. Um, if you have not listened to the other teachings in the series, I would encourage you to go to our website and check those out. Um, so we have talked about a pretty broad spectrum of topics so far. We have talked about uh, how men and women were both created in God's image with equal value and worth. We talked about what it means um, to live into how we were each created distinctly and what it looks like to express Christ-likeness. As men and women, we have talked about friendships between men and women that reflect the love of Jesus um, and, and really puts into practice the idea that we as followers of Jesus are family with each other. And we have talked about marriage. Uh, and so we are now rounding things out with I'm, what I'm hoping will be a helpful conversation uh, about transgender identities. Um, so I want to say right off the bat... Uh, I know that this is a difficult topic for a lot of people, um, for a lot of different reasons. It can come with a lot of baggage, it can come with a lot of assumptions, it can come with a lot of stigmas or struggles or plenty of other things that I am not listing off right now, uh, but the, the experience of trans people can be a really difficult thing to bring up in conversation, uh, much less talk about in detail and much less talk about in detail in a church setting. Um, and a lot of that reason, I think, is because, one, everyone's experience is different, right? But also uh, because everyone has an opinion. They, they just do. And no matter how neutral you might think you are, uh, we are all formed by something, right? We are all formed and shaped by something, And as much as we like to think that we are totally independent thinkers, uh, we don't exist in a vacuum. 
We just don't. That's, that's the reality of life. And if we aren't formed by Scripture first in the midst of everything else that's going on around us, then we will interpret things through whatever lens that we've developed. So I just want to make sure I have that disclaimer out there because I know everybody has something to say on this topic. Um, but I'm hoping that we can dive into the Scriptures today and that we can, we can work through that and be unified in, uh, in what we find in Scripture. So I want to I start things off by really emphasizing um, something that I think is super important. We have got to remember, um, in all of this, we are talking about people, okay? We are talking about real people and real lives, real souls, real struggles, real pain, real hurt, and a real need to experience the love of Jesus. Okay, we're talking about very real things, not just statistics. We're not just, uh, it's not just talking points. It's not political ammunition. It's not tools for whatever argument you want to make. That is not what we are doing. We are talking about people who need to experience love the deep love of Jesus. And so we're talking about parents. We're talking about sons and daughters and, and brothers and sisters and coworkers and classmates. And I think tragically, when, when people get caught up in angry debates sometimes about all of this by focusing on uh, removing, whether it's intentional or not, removing the humanity of the topic, uh, it, it can go really poorly. And it... It can, it can cause a lot of hurt. And in fact, we didn't plan it this way, uh, but today, if you were not aware, November 20th is actually known as uh, it's an annual Transgender Day of Remembrance. And uh, so to today actually commemorates people who have lost their lives as a result of anger and violence against transgender people. So I think we, uh, we can sometimes lose sight of the humanity of something when we, when we passionately talk about things. Um, so I just want to make sure that I remind everyone that we are talking about people. Uh, not just stats. So I think that's, that's super important to be reminded of. Um, so in an attempt to, to help with any tension that some people might feel, uh, I might not alleviate all of it, but to help with some of it, uh, I want to first briefly explain uh, some things that I am not going to do this morning. So to clear the air in case you thought this was coming, I am not in the next 40 to 55 minutes We'll see. Uh, I am not going to be making a case for what laws should or should not be passed in our country uh, affecting trans people. I am not advocating for any laws to be passed or not passed around uh, pronoun usage or bathroom policies. I am not even making a case for how all people should think about their gender or their experience of gender. I am not doing those things. Now, obviously, I am a follower of Jesus, I am on staff at a church, so I do believe that God's design uh, for all aspects of life is the best possible design to live out of. I do believe that, but I also believe that living out of that design does not start with changing our view on gender or sexuality or finances or anything else. It starts with encountering God through Jesus and having your heart changed by him. That is where it starts, right? So if you're here this morning and you haven't experienced that, I, I wouldn't necessarily expect a ton of, of what I'm saying up here this morning to be all that compelling to you. I wouldn't because at least most of what I'm saying today is assuming that you have experienced 
that relationship. And therefore, you, you have a trust in the authority of the scriptures over your life. Uh, so this morning, I, I am not so much going to be up here saying, this is how every person on planet Earth must start talking and thinking about gender effective immediately. I'm not doing that. I am more up here to say, if you're a follower of Jesus, and therefore you trust the scriptures as being authoritative over your life, here is what the scriptures teach about gender, or teach you to think about gender. Do you hear the difference there? All right, so with that out of the way, um, I'm going to give you a quick outline of what I am going to cover this morning. Uh, So I want to break up what we're talking about into two big picture questions this morning. Uh, The first question that I want to try to talk about is, how should followers of Jesus think about trans identities? And the second is, how should followers of Jesus interact with and relate to trans people? So I'm going to start off with a definition with all of that. Uh, When I say trans or transgender this morning, it is a a broad umbrella term in general. Um, There there is not one universally accepted definition out there. there. There is not. So what I want to do is for our purposes this morning, I want to give you a definition that I feel like sums up several different understandings uh, just so that we are all on the same page. When I say this, this is what I mean. Um, So for today, when I say transgender, uh, I am saying... Uh, the definition I would use is, is uh, describing or relating to people whose gender identity differs from the sex they were assigned at birth. That is the definition that I'm operating out of. So uh, this would be maybe a, a person who is born uh, biologically male but whose lived experience feels to them to be more characteristically that of a woman. They might identify as trans. Or a person who is born biologically female but whose experience doesn't seem to them to resonate much with that of a man or a woman. They might also identify as trans, potentially, and and dozens of other experiences along those lines. Any any and all of that might lead a person to identify as trans or as some type of trans-adjacent identity. Uh, All right, one last big picture disclaimer, uh, and then we'll jump in. so the, the topic of, of transgender identities, all the conversations surrounding this topic is immense, right? It is, it is a massive conversation. So it would obviously be impossible uh, for me to cover every single aspect of it today in sufficient detail. That's just not, that's not realistic. Um, so as a reminder, if there's anything that you were hoping I would mention or talk about uh, or any questions that may come up for you along the way, uh, I would strongly encourage you, you can still go to our website and you can submit questions anonymously and we will get to, we'll try to answer those in a podcast that we're going to do. Um, I would also highly recommend, uh, there's a, a book by an excellent author and speaker, his name's Preston Sprinkle, that's his real name. Um, it is called Embodied. Uh, it is a, a very good book, a very insightful book, um, and it's been helpful for me in, in processing through and thinking through all of this. So I would encourage you to, to read that if you want to dive a little deeper. All right. So I'm like 10 minutes in, and I've really only given you disclaimers uh, and a long-winded introduction. And uh, to be completely honest, it's because I wasn't really sure the best way to introduce everything. Um, 
So I took all of the ideas that I had in this broad spectrum and I tried to compress them down as much as I could without rambling on too much, and here we are. So uh, has anyone ever actually read the like uh, terms and agreements when it's like, check the box, you read all the terms and agreements? That's kind of what they sound like, just like disclaimers, 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 all this stuff. Uh, not, very, not very exciting. So uh, now that I'm done with my fifth disclaimer, let's talk about the first question that I mentioned. Uh, so the first question was, how should followers of Jesus think about trans identities? Um, so I think, first, when, when we ask a question like that, when we ask what the Bible says about this subject, is, is a little bit like asking, what does the Bible say about credit cards? Uh, well, in one sense, uh, the Bible doesn't say anything about credit cards, right? Because credit cards is a modern term. It's a modern concept that we have. If you go to, to BibleGateway.com or whatever search engine you choose to use for searching through the Bible and you type in credit card uh, for the whole Bible, you will get exactly zero results, give or take. Um, but at the same time, does that mean that the Bible has absolutely nothing to say about the way followers of Jesus think about and approach credit cards? No. No, it doesn't. Because the Bible has a lot to say, actually, about the way we use our money. It has a lot to say about the way we think about our possessions. It has a lot to say about the dangers of materialism and cautions against taking on unnecessary debts and the effects of that debt. So while the Bible may never use the term credit card, uh, there's actually a lot to glean from Scripture uh, about how followers of Jesus should think about and approach them. Right? And I, th I think it's similar in that way to what the Bible says about the, the topic of, of the transgender experience or transgender identities. But while the Bible doesn't use those terms exactly or specifically because it's a modern term, uh, the Bible actually does have a lot to say about how we think about our gender, our sense of self, our humanity, and our bodies. And, and all of that has direct implications for how we think about the transgender experience for people. Um, so I'm going to break down some of those, what I think are some of the most significant ideas on this topic from the Bible under three different headings. So the first one is that the Bible affirms the dignity of the human body. The Bible affirms the dignity of the human body. Um, to put this uh, another way, for followers of Jesus, the body is essential to our image-bearing status. Okay, the Bible is essential to our image-bearing status. So in Genesis 1, uh, which we covered way back in week 2 of this series, uh, Genesis 1 says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So our bodies are actually the very next thing that gets mentioned after the fact that we were made in God's image. So there's plenty else that we could say and have said, if you've not listened to the rest of the series, uh, about that verse. But for right now, I just want you to see in that verse that the Bible sees the human body as a very significant part of the original creation. The body itself is a significant part. So in other words, our bodies are good, right? Our bodies are important. They're essential. God doesn't create people as these like ethereal souls that are just floating around in the universe and then go, you know, they should probably have like a container. 
How about this thing called a body? We'll throw it in that. No, he, he creates people as embodied souls. So that is what, that is what we are. We are embodied souls. And, and the Bible actually upholds and affirms the dignity, even the sacredness of the physical body. Right? So in the Bible's view, we are so much more, so much more than flesh and blood. But we are also not less than flesh and blood. Right? We, we see this idea affirmed throughout the New Testament and how Paul stresses the importance of the body. One of the clearest places we see this is actually in 1 Corinthians in chapter 6. Um, so Paul says this. He says, do you not know that your bodies, your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Right? So notice the, the unbelievable amount of importance that there's placed on the body here, right? Temples of the Holy Spirit. And then look at this language right after that. He says, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Uh, so notice that Paul in this passage, he, he uses the word you synonymously with your body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. So is, is Paul here talking about the Corinthians themselves? Or is he talking about the Corinthians' physical bodies? Yes. Yes is the answer to that. Right? He's talking about both. He's using that interchangeably because they're one and the same. Right? Our bodies are not secondary to us. Our bodies are us. And so th this, is why, uh, this is why some people will say um, to not say things to a person of color like, I'm not racist, I'm colorblind, right? And the reasoning for that uh, is, is that statement seems like it might be implying that, that a person's skin or their body is somehow separate from or, or different from the real them, right? I don't see your body, I see you. But, but we don't have to pretend to not see the color of a person's skin in order to love them. Right? Loving how God made them, their ethnicity, their, their culture, their experiences, that's part of how you love them. Because their bodies are part of them. They are. Now, people of color are so much more than their bodies, so much more than the color of their skin. But they are not less than. They are not less than the color of their skin, right? We shouldn't feel like we have to disconnect them from their bodies in order to love them, right? And, and that, that is a disembodied view of humanity. It can be deeply harmful sometimes, right? And I would argue that the same logic actually applies with other aspects of the body too. So we shouldn't operate out of this separated mindset with the way that we view our sexed bodies either, which I think leads us to the, to the second thing that we see in the scriptures, which is that the Bible doesn't draw, or the Bible draws no distinction between our bodies and gender. The Bible draws no distinction between our bodies and our gender. So the Bible, at every point, 
operates as if one's biological sex is determinative, determinative, wow, it's a long word, of one's gender. Um, and, and that is, is really to put it pretty gently based on what Scripture says. Uh, so let me put it more plainly. Uh, so the Bible does not operate as if there is a difference between one's biological sex and one's gender. Um, so Eve in Scripture is said to be biologically female, and therefore she is a woman. That's the, the flow that we see. Adam is said to be biologically male, therefore he is a man. Um, so there actually are not examples in the Bible of a person's gender being distinct or different from their biological sex. Um, so maybe uh, in response to that, you may think something like, well, that's just because people back then didn't know that biological sex and gender were different things. They just didn't know. Or maybe they didn't know that they could be different things. Uh, maybe in your mind, uh, people back then likely had a very one-dimensional understanding of what a man was uh, and what a woman was. So it, it would be outside of the Bible's purview to talk about biological sex and gender as different and distinct from one another, because it just didn't apply like that back then. But I think there are some problems uh, with that thinking. One is that that places us as modern people outside of and above the authority of the scriptures, which can be problematic, um, especially if, if, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's a dangerous move to make. Uh, but second, I, I do think that's kind of an uninformed view of early societies as well. So cultures back then had plenty of gender stereotypes, just like we do today, right? Some of those stereotypes were actually pretty similar uh, to some that we have. And people back then, just like us, had people whose lived experiences fell outside of those gender norms. But to them, that didn't mean that those people were not their biological sex or that their biological sex was at odds with their gender identity. It just meant that they were having a different experience within their biological sex. Because to them, and to most human society throughout the history of the world, there hasn't been a distinction between a person's biological sex and a person's internal sense of gender. And now to that, you might, you might ask the question, well, what about intersex people? And if you're not asking that question, uh, I'll ask it for you. <clears throat> um, so some people say that since some people are born without clear indicators of being male or female physiologically, that that must mean that sex and therefore gender is more of a spectrum than a binary. So the logic goes, if intersex people exist, then there must be more categories than just male and female or man and woman. So does the Bible say anything about intersex people? Believe it or not, it, it actually does. Uh, it doesn't use that word again, but the category is the same. So in Matthew 19, actually, Jesus is approached by some people. He is answering a question about marriage and divorce. And in part of his answer, he says this. It'll be up on the screen. Uh, he says, for there are eunuchs who were born that way, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by others, and there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Um, so eunuchs, if you're unfamiliar with the term, uh, was, they were a specific class of people who were unable to participate in a typical male-female sexual relationship for a variety re of reasons and, and conditions. And so sometimes uh, their conditions left them without clear indicators 
uh, based on their physiological makeup of being men or women. This is just historical context. So Jesus, in this passage, he gives us three categories of eunuchs. He says, uh, and he says, one of them are eunuchs who were born that way, was the, the phrase that he says. And so that, as best we can tell, uh, would include people who are born without clear, unambiguous signs of being male or female, or what we would say is, is certain intersex conditions. And so there's a couple of reasons that this is really significant. So first, notice the dignity that Jesus bestows on people in that situation. So Jesus does not choose, like culture did at the time, he, he did not choose to call them deformed. He did not choose to call them second-class citizens. He did not choose to call them less than or, or anything of the sort. In fact, he uses the very existence of these people in this, in this category, the eunuchs that were born that way, he uses that as a, as a way to explain and highlight the noble calling of singleness to his disciples. Right? Jesus upholds and affirms the dignity of people whose experiences don't neatly fit into the categories of male and female. And that would have been so controversial at the time. Right? At the same time, though, within that very same conversation, Jesus upholds the teachings of Genesis 1, that, that God created humanity male and female. Right? He reiterates in that same breath that there are two categories of humans, determined by their biological makeup. So, in other words, I know this is, this is hard to grasp sometimes, yes, exceptions to the rule do exist, and those people should be loved and accepted and cared for and seen as the image bearers of God that they are. Absolutely. And it is still true that God created humanity as male and female. Right? There are two categories, with grace, with compassion, with understanding for those who fall outside of those categories. The, the categories do not diminish or disparage the exceptions, and the exceptions do not nullify the categories. Okay, that's really important for us to remember. Do you see why uh, Jesus was such a compelling teacher and also frustrated pretty much everyone? He did. He did, right? So, so the teaching of scriptures, beginning to end, teach that, that God makes humanity in two categories of male and female, and because the Bible upholds the dignity of the body as part of us, it also views our sexed bodies as determinative of our gender. So I know that's a lot. Um, so our third idea, we'll keep moving, is, is um, that following Jesus means living in alignment with the body that God gave you. So following Jesus means living in alignment with the body God gave you. So on a number of occasions uh, in the scriptures, God instructs his people to live in line with and not rebel against uh, their male or female body. So I'll just give you one example from the Old Testament and then one example from the New Testament. Uh, so here's the one from the Old Testament. Uh, it is from Deuteronomy chapter 22. Uh, it says, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. That's pretty direct. Um, some of us might feel pretty uncomfortable 
with, uh, with that directness. And maybe, maybe you hear that and you're like, yeah, Christians have a pretty complicated relationship with the Old Testament though, right? And to some extent, yes, I, uh, there are certain things that, that that tension does exist in. There are some commands, I would say, uh, in the Old Testament that very much directly apply to followers of Jesus today, like the Ten Commandments. That is one I would say, that one still holds up, right? That is still something that we should abide by as followers of Jesus. And there are some commands in the Old Testament that don't, like not eating shellfish, right? And Unless you are allergic, uh, but that's more like general wisdom than biblical mandate. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Um, but something, something interesting about this Old Testament command specifically from Deuteronomy is that Paul actually echoes the same type of instruction in the New Testament. Uh, so most notably, he does this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. So I'm not going to walk through the whole thing because it is an entire chapter. Um, and there's plenty to get lost in, and there's, there's a lot going on in that chapter. But I would encourage you to go and read it in your own time. I think, it's, I think it's really helpful. So in that chapter, though, Paul seems to confirm that men who follow Jesus should not dress like or present themselves as women, and women should not dress like or present themselves as men who are followers of Jesus. Um, he, he even uses some language that is actually strikingly similar to what we just read in Deuteronomy 22. Which would make sense, right, because Paul was actually steeped in the Old Testament scripture. He was very familiar with it. But here's what's really interesting, I think, about the instructions that he gives in 1 Corinthians. The specific application of his instructions are actually culturally informed. So Paul, when he gives these instructions, he he actually cites uh, long hair versus short hair and head coverings versus no head coverings. And those, at the time, were both cultural norms for how women and men dressed and presented themselves in first century Corinth. So women had long hair at the time in Corinth in the first century. Men had short hair. Women wore head coverings. Men did not. Now, almost all scholars uh, across the board would agree that followers of Jesus do not need to abide by the specific applications of the principle that Paul gives in 1 Corinthians. Right? So, men, if you have long hair, you do not need to repent by cutting it all off. Okay? I think we can all agree on that. Women, you are allowed to have short hair. I don't think anyone is arguing otherwise. But while the specific applications of the principle don't apply, the principle that Paul gives does. Right? It is still true that followers of Jesus should not strive to present themselves in appearance as the opposite sex, because following Jesus looks like making an effort to live in alignment with the body God gave you. Now, you might be asking, okay, what things does that include? What types of things does that mean a man shouldn't wear and a woman should, and vice versa? And that is an excellent question. And it is one I am not going to answer. (laughs) Not right now, at least. So I'm going to do you guys a favor. I went ahead and pulled it up, uh, and I am submitting an anonymous question. (laughs) It was me. It's not anonymous. Uh, But we're going to talk more about that on the podcast. So I just don't have time to go into it today, or we would all be here for so long, Um, which is fine, I guess. But you will get hungry, and we don't have food for you. So I I simply cannot take that deep of a dive this morning, but 
Uh, I, I do think... I do think that there is room for healthy debate among followers of Jesus about what this refers to and what it doesn't refer to. It, it does, as far as specific application goes. But I, but I will say this. It has to mean something. It has to mean something, right? If Paul's principle has no bearing or application at all for us as followers of Jesus, I think we need to look again. Does that sound fair? All right, so this brings us to the conclusion of our first question. <laughs> I told you it would be a long one. Um, our first question, which is, how should followers of Jesus think about transgender identities? Um, so I, I, do, I know it's been, we're going on for a while. I think a complex topic like this one does require nuanced answers. I, I do. So I feel like it's worth being long-winded for, just for the sake of clarity, if nothing else. But I, I think that these three ideas that we talked about give us a pretty good foundation for thinking about this subject, uh, thinking about the subject well as followers of Jesus. Now, before I use my remaining brief moments uh, to answer the whole second question, uh, I just I want to reiterate this to make sure it is heard very clearly. Um, Everything that I just laid out, everything that I just talked about, summarizes how followers of Jesus should think about this topic. How followers of Jesus should think about this. Followers of Jesus. You see what I'm doing? <laughs> I'm being very repetitive right now because I'm, I'm trying to get ahead of something. So if you take these ideas, or take those three ideas that I just talked about, and you go, awesome. I am so pumped to take these three points to show my liberal neighbor or my transgender coworker how wrong they are. You have entirely missed the point. Right? Those three ideas will not make sense, nor should they, to a person who has not accepted the authority of God as mediated through the scriptures. Those are for you as a follower of Jesus, not for them, at least right now. Right? Now, if you have someone in your life who claims to know and follow Jesus, and, and they want to know how to think about these things well, then these three ideas could be very helpful for them. They could. But they're not for anybody and everybody, nor should we use them as if they are. And, and those conversations with people, those conversations should happen within the context of meaningful, intentional relationships with people, right? Not on social media or in comment sections. Are we clear on that? I think it's really helpful. I think it's helpful to, to at least acknowledge that reality. So with that addressed, let's try to tackle our second question. So how should followers of Jesus interact with and relate to trans people. So we talked about uh, what we should know or what we, what we can believe about humanity, about our bodies, and about our gender. And, and so now I want to talk about how we relate to people that we know or that we may come to know who may identify as being transgender. And so I've got two words for you, and that's with understanding. With understanding. So the way 
that you and I, as followers of Jesus here on earth, should relate to our transgender neighbors or coworkers or classmates or friends or family members is with an incredible amount of understanding, an understanding of their struggle, an understanding of their dissatisfaction, an understanding of their experience. Now, maybe, maybe you hear that and you think, ah, see, that's just the thing now. Uh, I do not understand it. <laughs> I don't understand it at all. Maybe you have been sitting here and you've been listening to me talk about gender or gender ideology and intersex people and men presenting themselves as women and you've been thinking to yourself, this is a whole different world than the one I live in. You might, you might be thinking that or you might be thinking, I don't even fully understand what some of those words are right now, much less how they would relate to somebody going through something like this. And, and maybe it feels like for you, the last thing that you're going to be able to do is understand where transgender people are coming from. Maybe you feel like that. But I want to ask you to consider something with me this morning. Um, maybe you have never once had even the slightest moment of doubt about your gender and your gender identity. Maybe that is you. Maybe that has never been a struggle that you have experienced in your life. And that's fine. It is. But can I ask you this? Have you ever taken a moment and looked in the mirror and not liked what you saw looking back at you? Right? Maybe, maybe it was something physical. You didn't like the appearance of the person who was looking back at you. You didn't, you didn't like the size of the person looking back at you. You didn't like all the wrinkles and all the wrong places and too many places, right? You didn't like the ethnicity of the person looking back at you. Maybe it's not physical at all, right? Maybe that you've looked in the mirror at times and what you see is just all the decisions that you've made throughout the years that have made your life a mess today. Maybe you look in the mirror and, and, and you see the cumulative effects of a long line of failures of what you were supposed to be or maybe what you were supposed to do. Maybe you look in the mirror and you hear the condemnation of a, of a father or a mother or a family member who made sure that you knew about all those failures every time they happened. Or maybe you look in the mirror and, and you just have to immediately look away because of the harm that has been done to the person in that reflection. And every glimpse at that person is just one more reminder. Have you ever felt any of that? I would imagine that at least most of us have felt some of those things. Have you ever felt like something was wrong with you? Have you ever felt like something was broken about you? Something is dysfunctional or disconnected or distorted or warped beyond what it is supposed to be. Have you ever had that experience as a human being? You see, the scriptures make the case that, that whether or not you have struggled with your sense of gender or gender identity, all of us 
have had our views of ourselves impacted by sin in this world. When Adam and Eve decided to sin against God, it broke something in the very fabric of God's creation. And because sin entered the human story, we don't see God like we should. We don't see others like we should. And we, we don't see creation like we should. We don't see ourselves like we should. And so now, at times when we look in the mirror, we don't see an image bearer of God who is cherished and loved by the creator. Right? We see brokenness. We see incompleteness. We see failure. We see inadequacy. We see wrongness. And pretty much all of us have felt a version of that. So here's my point with all of that. If, if you have felt that, if, or if you have at least, if you have felt it at all, you have some level of understanding to offer a person who is trans. I am not saying that it's the exact same. That would be a very silly thing to imply. We are all on different journeys, and every person's journey is unique, right? Every trans person's journey is different from every other trans person's journey. But what I am saying is that if you have ever felt like something was wrong or off about you, or you, you felt like something was broken, then you do actually have some amount of understanding to offer any person in this world going through any type of experience. And much like Jesus' response to all of us, you can have deep compassion to offer. But it doesn't, it doesn't just stop there. The Bible tells us something else about that experience that you absolutely must know, that you must hear. And so for followers of Jesus, that experience is temporary. It is. It's temporary. Look, look with me at, at Romans 8 on the screen. So it says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Right? This is Paul describing the brokenness of the world that we all feel the effects of in some way. It's groaning, the pains of childbirth. Right? Part of being human is looking around at the world and going, this is not like it is supposed to be. It just isn't. This is not what life is supposed to feel like. This is not what truth and goodness and justice and beauty is supposed to look like. Something is broken. But then he goes on in verse 23. He says, not only so. So in other words, not only does the world in general feel that way, he says, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship. And, and don't miss this next phrase. He says, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. 
So just like we said earlier, um, it is not just the world at large that is broken, right? We are broken. Our bodies are broken. Our view of ourselves and our understanding of ourselves and even our own relationship with our own bodies is broken. But Paul says that there is, there is coming a day when that is not true anymore. One day in the future for followers of Jesus, God is bringing the redemption of our bodies. Not the discarding of our bodies. Not the, the shedding of our bodies so that we can float around as disembodied souls again. No, he says the redemption of our bodies. The, the things that are off in us about the way that we view God and the way that we view each other and, and creation itself, all of those things will be set right. And the things that are broken about the way we view our, our own bodies will be set right, the way we view ourselves. So if you, are, if you are listening to this and you struggle with any amount of relationship to your body, hear me say this. God is not indifferent to your experience. God is not indifferent. In fact, he plans to do something about it. And in the meantime, he wants to walk with you through it. He wants to provide other people who love him and love you to walk with you. And this is why it matters so much for all of us to have understanding and compassion for one another. When we realize that, that we are part of the same story as other people, it actually grants us the ability to have understanding. I may not completely comprehend every minute detail of another person's struggle. I won't, but I sure know what it feels like to struggle. I do. I, I may not completely feel the exact same things that you feel, but I do feel. Right? Because I'm part of that same story. I'm part of the same story that God is writing. Right? It's the story that, that started with intention. It was briefly disrupted by transgression and is one day going to end with redemption. Right, so, so in order for us to look more like Jesus in all of life, but specifically in the ways that we interact with others and those around us, we've got to remember we are all part of that story. Every single one of us. And that should inform every part of our lives, right? including and especially in the way that we treat others. So what we're going to do here in a minute is we are going to, uh, we're going to take communion together for followers of Jesus. Um, this is something that we do in remembrance of, uh, of what we just talked about, of the, the actions that Jesus did when, when God sent Jesus to the cross on our behalf and set in motion this plan of redemption for us. That is what we are coming together 
to remember. It's not just a a motion that we go through because this is what you do in church. This is why we are all here. This is what we are here to remember. This is what we are here to talk about. This is what we are here to celebrate. In the midst of whatever we are experiencing or going through, in the midst of whatever we are struggling with, we don't come to the table because we've gotten it all figured out. We can come to the table and and say, thank you, God, for all the things that you have done, the things that you have already redeemed in my life. But we can also come to the table and say, God, I need you. I need your redemptive work to continue in my life. And I'm doing this action in remembrance of what you have promised. The ways that you have promised to restore all of creation, including our bodies. And so I invite you during the next few songs um, to, to take time to, to come and take communion. If that is, if that is true of your life, if you have, if you have accepted and chosen to, to follow after Jesus in that way, grab some people from your life group. Grab some people that you came with or just grab some people who are near you if you came by yourself. And, and we can approach the tables together. We can, we can approach the tables as unified people who have the shared experience of living in a broken world who eagerly wait for redemption. That's what we're doing. So I invite you to to pray with us as we enter into that time.